fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, it is so good to be here. Oddly, though, after our practice, the song from The Little Mermaid, Under the Sea, got stuck in my head. I don't know why. Uh, so... You know, we'll see what happens with that. Hopefully we won't do this to our audience. It was, you know, fun but torture. Yeah, what are you doing, Dennett? You're giving everyone an earworm. Uh, you may not know this about me, but songs get stuck into my head readily, and I wake up with a different song in my head every single day. Uh, it's it's actually terrible. Uh, you've stumbled across a psychological issue with me, Dennett, but we're not going to get into that because we've got to talk to a man who has no psychological issues, especially about living under the sea, and that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben. Where are you broadcasting from this week? Dan, this week I am checking out this beautiful coral reef. I love watching all of the various creatures going about their business. I'm so glad you guys are here to help me design a new underwater habitat for my observations so I can stay down here indefinitely. Well, that is what I plan to do, Ben, and I'm glad that you're there ahead of us because this episode was inspired by Bioshock. I remember watching this uh, when I first played it, you know, a couple of years ago. And the, when you, you basically you, you get you're the plane crash and you stumble across this lighthouse and you take an elevator that goes all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. And then it slowly floats through this beautiful 1920s underwater city. So I thought I would I would assemble the brain trust and figure out if this is possible. And Denon, I know that you've thought about this because as you mentioned in our Merfolk episode, you've, you when you were a kid, you wanted to either live at the bottom of the sea or live in space. So I'm curious, before we get into that, I got to know, we talked about my psychological issues earlier, but I'm afraid I've stumbled across one of yours, Denon. Why do you want to be so close to danger? Is this about, are you an adrenaline junkie or do you just have a death wish? Well, really, Dan, neither. Um, if you look okay. at it, my desire to be under the ocean or out in space probably stemmed most from, I both thought it was cool and I, I, I lived in a time of danger, Dan. I mean, I was in the child of the yeah. 70s of nuclear war, duck and cover. Yeah. I assumed the surface was going to be wiped out. This was my backup plan. Like, I found it really exciting, one, to have a backup plan and survive. Because mm -hmm. um, back then, I was not an apocalypse denier. Um, right. and, and, and two... You know, I was also a Saturday morning um, Hall of Justice, Justice League, you know, mm -hmm. junkie, the, the animated cartoon. And though I never really understood Aquaman's superpowers or what his role was, I thought his under the sea life was super cool. Um, and, and finally, <laughs> finally, I love dolphins, Dan. And, yeah. you know, what, what better thing to do if you love dolphins than live in a city under the sea? So really, it, it was a happy dream. Well, I love it. I have to tell you, I'm a little surprised here because you said you grew up in the 70s, but I thought you were a Gen Zer. I mean, that's what we'd established on an earlier episode, that you were uh, much, much, much younger than that because we watched the same shows in the 90s together. Um, so I'm very <laughs> that just surprised. That's my that. mental age, Dan. That's just my <laughs> mental age, not my biological age. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but, you know, it, we were talking about being, you know, living under the ocean. I, we're going to hopefully, the goal of this episode, guys, is to build a city 
that's, you know, like Rapture in from Bioshock. That's a, a large, sprawling city at the bottom of the ocean. But let's start something that's possible, something that's been done, something a little more shallow. And that is, you know, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to someone who is not shallow at all. And that's our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Um, he's very emotionally deep. But the place that he <laughs> that he sent me is not emo is not very deep at all. And that's the Jules Undersea Lodge. This is an underwater hotel. It's in Key Largo. It used to be an underwater research station that they've repurposed into a hotel. Now, it's about 30 feet deep, so it's not too far. Uh, it's about a three-story building. So it gives you that sense of danger because it is submerged. You are surrounded by water, but in an emergency situation, you can go right up to the surface. So, Ben, what did you think when you saw this video? Uh, were you interested in going there? Like, do you have this, this, this need for adrenaline as well? Or was this more uh, from a scientific uh, observation perspective? Now, I mean, as soon as I finished watching that video, I immediately went to their website to see what it took to book the... Uh... <laughs> To book the place, <laughs> lots of money. It's pretty expensive. It's a little expensive. Yeah, it's little not dig. cheap, but it's not no. crazy expensive either. But no, it no, just no. looks super fun. Uh, you know, you get to learn a little scuba diving because you have to scuba dive into it. Unlike a lot of these mm -hmm. other underwater hotels that are really just windows into aquariums. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's actually underwater. Um, so you get to scuba in. You get, you know, your your food delivered by by underwater delivery it just seems like a super fun experience you get to watch fish as you go to sleep i i don't know i i really wanted to try it out that's for sure yeah and i think i'm i may be misspeaking here but i believe that underwater delivery service is called scuba um yeah, and, sure. which is well, it's right on time dan and i would just like to point out that watching fishes as you go to sleep is better than sleeping with the fishes <laughs> That's true. Uh, and I do think, you know, um, that if you're going to go to a place, if you're going to start out, this might be the, the way to go to get the, your entree point. It's a gateway, a gateway habitat if you, if you want to go further down. Right. Um, because there's, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Ben, uh, there are other places there. There's um, there's there's a restaurant in the Maldives, which is about 16 feet below sea level. And you mentioned that this place wasn't that expensive. Well, you know, I, I, a big baller, Ben, is what I like to call you in <laughs> private. And if you really want to go, you know, I found a place. Uh, it's actually not a place. It is a gigantic. This is this is geared to the billionaire class, but it's mm -hmm. about three hundred thousand dollars a night. Yep. You go on basically a private submarine that's the size of a hotel and you get a gourmet meal uh you get a butler service uh, it's concierge all the way now is this something that that you would be more interested in to you know so you don't have to mingle with the common folk no that's that's definitely not i i want to scuba to my underwater hotel none of this take a <laughs> submarine or take a glass elevator stuff that's it's not the real experience dan <laughs> I like that. You're a man of the people, Ben. Uh, I, I love that. Well, you know, so as I mentioned, so we, we start out small, but the goal is to build a sprawling underwater city. We're going to solve that. So I'm going to model this after Rapture, which is the city in Bioshock. So just to get a little bit of the extreme end of what we're talking about here, uh, this is about 20 to 30 fathoms underwater. Uh, and thanks to Ben, I learned that a fathom is six feet, roughly. And for our Jules Verne fans out there, you know, uh, for a league under the sea is about three miles. So 20,000 leagues under the sea is about 60,000 miles. Uh, we all know that the deepest part of the ocean is only six and a half feet deep. So we have learned a lot wait, wait, since wait, the early Dan, days of science fiction. What? Dan, am I wrong? you just said the deepest part of the ocean is six and a half feet deep. I, I don't think you want that <laughs> <Miles>. specific stance. <laughs> 
six and a half miles. I knew I knew you were going to correct me on something, and uh, uh, that's that's a good one. Good catch there, Denny. Six and a half miles deep, which is way further than six and a half feet. Um, so we aren't going to go anywhere near that far. But let's, you know, I think um, we're going to go maybe 150, 200 feet deep. You know, um, so we're going to start there. So let's talk about some of the physics that go on at, at that level. Living totally underwater, it's probably a little bit trickier. Uh, so, Denon, uh, tell me, where are we going with this? Well, I think from if you're in the city, hopefully you've solved the pressure problem, right? The first thing we all we're, we're all aware of divers getting the bends and issues of pressure change as you go underwater and the challenges of scuba versus mm -hmm. free diving. And we can talk about that. Um, it is a risk, but hopefully you design your system to handle the pressure. I mean, that's what a submarine does for you. Um, hopefully your city does that. Now, if you were designing, you know, in Southern California here, Dan, everyone knows we love our open air malls. I grew up in mm -hmm. Connecticut where malls were indoor. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I'm a little worried if we let the Southern Californians design it, they're going to want the open water city. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I don't know what that would look like or mean. Um, yeah. But the so really my number one first concern is light, right? Uh -huh. What mm -hmm. people have to understand, water is pretty pretty dark. Um, the deeper you get down, when I was a grad student, one of the first labs I ever had to TA was how how far in water does light go, um, using lasers and and colored dyed water. So, you know, it's it's near and dear to my heart. But I think light is the first thing we'd be thinking about, Dan, because light also gets you photosynthesis and food. So just, you know, put, putting a little like exclamation point on it there. Well, I would say I would I would argue that probably the first thing we need is oxygen. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe that's oh, true. No, you, you can hold your breath, Dan, but you got to be able to look around <laughs> for the rest of your life. What are you talking about? Well, no, no, no. For a little bit. I, that's why it's the second thing you need. You got to be able to see and then you need to breathe. <laughs> well, you know, well, Ben, you mentioned, you know, the top of our Merfolk episode, how, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the fixes for Merfolk would be to have an underwater city uh, with a network of tubes, um, yes. kind of like, you know, how Ted Stevens described the Internet uh, famously exactly. back in the 90s, a series of tubes. But if you have a series of underwater oxygen tubes, um, mm -hmm. I'm guessing we're not going to go that way with the city. But you and I, uh, unlike Denon, understand the importance of oxygen and <laughs> yeah. the need for it for survival. Yeah, I, it's certainly the thing you have to do. I, you have to do to solve the problem is to breathe underwater. Breathe, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what's, what's Brilliantly put, Denon. Is if you're in a, sub, a submersible building or a submarine, you have air. So the trick is you got to get rid of the carbon dioxide and get the oxygen back out. And that's a chemical process. It takes energy, but it's it's a thing you can do. You use scrubbers like they use in space to turn the CO2 back to O2 or to just get rid of the CO2 so it doesn't poison you. And then you need regular shipments, uh, of, shipments of oxygen of yes, of to keep you going. Now, the advantage of being underwater is you can use electricity to crack oxygen out of the water and that and you could replenish your oxygen that way rather than in space where you have to rely on shipments of oxygen from the the mainland if you will uh, like <laughs> right. they do on the space station <laughs> right well i'd like to become self-sufficient my goal is to become self-sufficient so let's uh, cracking water is the way i want to go yes. generating oxygen i think is important um mm -hmm. 
So I'm going to go with that. But you mentioned you need energy. We need that electricity to, to shock that water uh, to, to do what we want it to do. So what, what about electricity generation? You know, we've, you mentioned submarines. Nuclear submarines obviously are run by a nuclear generator. Could we put something? Is that the best course of action down there? What do you think, Ben? Uh, nuclear is really good, but it's only self-sufficient as long as your nuclear fuel lasts, which mm -hmm. is potentially a problem. Uh you know, delivering nuclear fuel down to the bottom of the ocean seems kind of risky in some ways as well. Mm -hmm. Another option is you could build derricks above your city and have like windmills or solar panels uh, and then bring a cable down. That That's probably a, a safer solution, a more sustainable solution. But again, those things are going to require maintenance and other stuff as well. The reality is it's all of these systems, especially power systems, require regular maintenance and either fueling mm -hmm. if you're going nuclear or, you know, rebuilding your uh, windmill blades because they're corroded by the salt spray. Well, you know, and I think that we have to highlight, though, that that's not hugely different from what we deal with on the surface. No, not at all. Um, right. All of our electricity generation requires maintenance. Um, I do. I Personally, I really like the nuclear option one. Um, I know, yes, nuclear fuel doesn't last forever either, um, but it, it is something you can build into the system and you can have a stockpile and you can mm -hmm. plan. I yeah. also do wonder, you know, just like we build wind turbines, um, we've talked so often on this episode that basically our main form of generating electricity is spinning something. Mm -hmm. um, and I do wonder if you're smart and design um, your city in the right location, um, oceans do have currents. Uh, uh. And it's not something that we've really, you know, thought about mm -hmm. um, because we live up here, not down there. But I bet you you could design um, what I would call ocean turbines, mm -hmm. right? So that you use the currents to spin what you need to to generate electricity. And I'm going to go back to my first statement and just double down. Like sure. if you're in the right place and you have light, um, you can have your solar power back up down in your city. You don't need to be on the surface if you're, you know, in the right location. And, um, Dan, mm -hmm. light can give you photosynthesis, which takes care of your oxygen CO2 issues. Um, you know, we could we could go the natural route. So I'm just I'm just going back to I was not that dumb to mention light first. <laughs> I just want to clarify that. That's sure, all, my whole purpose of this answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will tell you, great minds think alike, Denon, because what I was going to suggest was an underwater turbine that somehow used the waves to generate electricity. I love that idea. Um, and, and I don't I don't I don't think I, I think that if we put that together, that would make this energetically self-sufficient. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, one last thing here. Um, before we move on to uh, food and all that, which I think is highly important. But I think communication in a lot of ways is very key. You know, in the game Bioshock, there's a lack of communication with the surface, which causes quite an issue uh, in, 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 the, in the underwater city. Um, it turns into mayhem down there. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the Hunger Games in some ways. And I don't want to see that happen. So communication is key. So are there ways to easily communicate with the surface. Uh, Denon, I'm wondering if there's any physics restraints on, restraints on that, given the amount of water, the medium between us and the surface. We'll start there first, and then uh, I'm sure Ben has some solution to that. I, I think I would phrase it not so much as physics constraints, Dan, okay. but as different physics, right? Okay. So, because everything we do in the air goes through water, 
Um, radiation does go through water. Different wavelengths do it better. Water absorbs and reflects. You do have to deal with a boundary issue. If you're, if you're using some sort of electromagnetic communication, right, radio, microwave, whatever, you do have to deal with what happens at the air-water interface because interfaces always kind of mess with things. Mm -hmm. um, you can just build really, really tall antennas because unlike a submarine, right, you're not necessarily trying to hide your city. Um, and you're also not also trying to move your city, right? Like a really tall antenna for a submarine has the problem of possibly breaking off. And I wanted to handle the antenna situation because yeah. I know for Ben, antennas are an issue yeah. so, you know, <laughs> from past episodes. We are deep, so, deep into our psyche here. We're, we're triggering a lot yes. of the strange deep-seated psychological <laughs> issues here. A, a lot of psychological issues. And finally, I do want to point out cables are something, and Ben can give us the details on this. Cables are something we figured out how to put underwater um, Dan, so I do think, I think it was more of a video game storytelling element, the lack of communication. I think of all our challenges, and we have a lot of challenges, I don't want to minimize it, I think communication is is a solved no-brainer one. Okay, yeah. that's good. I mean, you know, the game does take, the, the, built, the city was built in the 1920s. Things were a little bit right. different technologically. So this I'm is guessing true. That's where they went with the video game, but I'm, I was hoping that we had most of this solved, and uh, Ben, I'm sure you can finish that up. Absolutely, Dan. I, I think communicate. I think, as Denon mentioned, communication is a solved problem. Even in the twenties, undersea communication was mostly solved. The first transatlantic telegraphs were built in the eighteen hundreds. So you could even just have a telegraph going to uh, ra uh, Rhapsody, uh, Rapture, Rapture. Yeah. You could. <laughs> you, you, I like yeah. Rhapsody better. If it was named Rhapsody, <laughs> yeah, we would have had better. all these problems. Yeah. Yeah. So you could even have. They could have even had a telegraph in the twenties to Rapture. But what's okay. what's important to remember is that these cables are fairly vulnerable. Uh, we hear stories every once in a while about these uh, internet cables on the bottom of the ocean getting hit by anchors and being broken by anchors, or a, a fishing trawler uh, goes over it and breaks the cable. So I think what happened to Rapture is pretty realistic. If they only had a single cable going to them, um, it's not uncommon for those cables to be broken either by negligence from a, a boat or just eventually corroding and failing because salt water is a horrible environment and the cables do break down over time. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to get to some of the construction, which I think uh, we've got a couple of solves, but that's something to consider when actually making the buildings down there. But I want to make us self-sufficient, right? You know, Ben, you want to do your research. you got to be down there for a while. Uh, I don't, I'm going to say indefinitely, uh, but, you know, maybe that's not the case, but we'll say for a, for, a, for a long time. What do you need? You know, we mentioned the things before that you need, but obviously we need food. We can't always be relying on the surface, those surface dwellers, as they'll soon become called, we'll soon take to calling them. Uh, we can't rely on them to, in a constant supply chain. So what do you do? Well, you can hunt and gather. You can fish. You know, there, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff down there. But what about, you know, seaweed? What about a kelp farm? You know, I love seaweed salads. Yeah, I look forward to them when I go to a Japanese restaurant. I love them. Uh, you can make a greenhouse inside um, in, inside the new city. I think there's a lot going on here. And Ben, I know that some of this is near and dear to your heart. So tell me what you found out. You're absolutely right, Dan. Like seaweed is a great source of all sorts of stuff. It can be food. Uh, we eat seaweed and kelp all the time. And so, and you can grow it really easily in, in relatively shallow water. So as long as we have access to a shallow deck to grow the seaweed, to anchor the seaweed mm -hmm. too, we can mm -hmm. easily farm it and let it grow just 
naturally. Um, and I think the underwater uh, like greenhouses are a good th good idea too. Again, you'll have to either be shallow or use grow lights. So you know we've solved the power, so grow lights aren't a big deal. Um, but you can but plant agriculture underwater is not a very difficult thing to pull off. You know we grow plants on the space station. There's no reason we can't grow plants, you know, underwater in our in Rapture or any other uh, underwater city. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, I think something really important to think about here is you use the word self-sufficient, not self-contained. And I think that's right. a really critical difference mm -hmm. because, you know, we've tried to build Biosphere 1 and 2. We tried to make a totally self-contained environment, and we've right. never really quite succeeded at that. Um, and the thing is, we do not have to be isolated from the ocean environment, right? We can have exchange in and out of our city. And that is a key element of self-sufficiency, right? So you can farm outside and bring the stuff in. You can have some farming inside if you want. But um, to, to you know Ben's point, the seaweed farm is great. So it's really figuring out your whole ecosystem and that the city can use stuff outside it. We can bring water in, as we mentioned, to make oxygen. We can expel CO2 out without worrying about stuff if we're bringing oxygen in. So a, a lot of exchange will have to happen, I think, to make this work well. But we know how to do exchange. Mm -hmm. So self-sufficient, not self-contained. I just wanted to kind of yeah. highlight that little bit there. I think that that's extraordinarily important. Uh, I think it's when you go down there, you want to be able to live without having to constantly rely on the surface. But no, I think you're right. It doesn't have to be a, a biosphere-type environment. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a great distinction. Uh, but, you know, Ben, I want to mention something else here is I believe you've got a friend who did a startup called Primary Ocean, um, which you famously called kelp the corn of the ocean, which <laughs> I don't know how they haven't taken that as their slogan. But I was looking up all the things that they can do with kelp, and it's not just for eating anymore. Uh, you can use it for fertilizer, bioplastic, biofuel in case our, our ocean turbines don't quite have the juice we need, uh, or textiles. So with kelp, you can use that. You can have a kelp-based society where you could have lots of stuff that you need and just have these large farms. I think this is this is a great solution as we move towards self-sufficiency. Yeah, and it's, and it's not just for under undersea living either. You know, kelp mm -hmm. farms can sure. help us, uh, us land dwellers as well. Uh, uh in that they are a great way to increase our both our farming area uh, because we can grow this stuff in the ocean, which generally we don't use very well uh, right now in terms of farming. Uh, but also, if we have a lot of kelp farms, that's a, another potential way to sequester um, carbon dioxide because you're mm -hmm. pulling uh, carbon dioxide out of the air and into the kelp and then you know, don't burn it in this case, uh, do something else with it. But, right. <laughs> but. Well, you know, and I think there's something else exciting about this, Dan, uh -huh. that, that everyone likes. We all know that we're actually in the holiday season right now. Um, it, it apparently started like September 1st in some places. August and, 31st, and I believe, right there in the August, yeah, I think is when you yeah. start buying trees. And what you really want when you're in the holiday season is, is mugs with slogans. And, you do. And I think we're all looking to upgrade. I'm looking for the kelp is the ocean corn corn of the ocean um, corn of the ocean <laughs> yes you know um but but that you know i i love my i am a physicist phenom mug physics phenom mug but you know um other slogans are always good and that that's what allows you to get the infinite number of christmas mugs 
Right. <laughs> right. Ad, ad it's unending slogans, right? right? Like, that's just where the world is. <laughs> Famous yeah. mugs ad infinitum. That's the goal here at the show. But I think the thing to really think about, Dan, is, is when you're harvesting your, your kelp farm and you drop mm-hmm. your mug, your, your drink's going to spill in the ocean and you're not going to yeah. be able to enjoy your drink. But if It'll you have that. a sealing water bottle, it's just going to float and you can pick it back up and, you know, wipe it off and, and drink just fine. So, yeah. you know, if you're a kelp farmer, maybe get a Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos and Gear-Based Technology water bottle. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, I love great quotes. I like to put them on shirts, though. So this is this is a blank side of my shirt. This is the, this is the slogan side. Uh, Biology is nature's technology. That could not be more relevant than in this episode. But I think kelp, corn of the ocean, Ben Seepser, enigmatic engineer, uh, That is a, that would make a great T-shirt. And hopefully... We can make it out of kelp. Maybe we can do some kind of uh, cross yeah. promotion and make a bio, a textile, kelp textile T-shirt is what I'm looking for. Uh, but, you know, one of the things we have to think about here, guys, is if we're going to grow, let's say non-kelp, you know, kelp can do a lot, but we're going to get sick and tired of eating seaweed salads at some point. we got to have other stuff. As you mentioned, Ben, we can have these greenhouses, but we're going to need fresh water which is going to require desalinization. We've got water all around us, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink unless we process it. So how, you know, actually, I'm going to go to you first, Dennis. What would be, what are the physics issues with creating something with desalinization? I know we've cracked it a lot, but I feel like there's, for on the large scale, is this possible without damaging the environment, of course? I mean, really, the only issue at some level, the core issue is the energy cost, right? Okay. It just takes a lot of energy to get the salt out of water. And that's what's setting the limits right now. And and when you're in a world where you're struggling with energy-driven climate change issues and drought at the same time, it, it can sometimes be counterproductive. You want desalinization for the fresh water, but it costs you a lot of energy. Um, since we solved our energy problem with our ocean currents, Dan, mm, yep. I think we're in a really good place. And also, I, I think there's a dual so, you know solution here. You know, here on the surface. Um, you know, what do you do with all the salt? Underwater, you use it to make that kelp so much more flavorful. (laughs) So it's a twofer, (laughs) right? You get your fresh water and you salt your kelp and you're just feeling much better about the whole thing. So um, I have to admit, it's the one thing, there's an energy cost. Um, I would love to get that next level of technology breakthrough. I have a lot of colleagues working on um, other and clever ways of getting salt out of water, you know, through various you know, less energetic processes, but that's the real challenge, right? The, the salt likes being there and it's hard to get it out. It's interesting too, because current desalinization techniques, generally you bring in the ocean water and then you send out a slightly saltier brine um, that's also warm. Uh, and so you have this kind of interesting uh, environment you set up where you have slightly elevated temperatures um, and a slightly saltier environment. Now, if you don't take out too much of the too much water per unit of seawater, you can the brine doesn't have to be too much saltier, and you can actually maybe even create some sort of underwater habitat that might be conducive. You know, you're at the bottom of the ocean; it's cooler there. This warmer area may attract sea life that you weren't otherwise expecting, and you could end up making kind of a underwater warm zone that attracts new life that could be farmable or just help the environment in some other way or attract sharks <laughs> <laughs> i know you're worried about that Dad. very i know you're worried about that very mm-hmm. worried yeah. but I, I was gonna say i think the real solution that we overlook 
is, I mean, I'm, we, I think we all know I'm a big fan of Dune, mm-hmm. right? And they figured yep. out how to recycle their water. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to balance making new fresh water from desalinization versus really, really efficient recycling of water. Yeah. Um, and, and also using salt water for things that it's fine that the water's salty, right? There, there's a lot of processes that we use fresh water that really, if you're using the salt water to do it, you're probably not too worried about. So finding kind of that triple approach um, I think would be really useful when we're when we're down in our underwater city. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say something that's probably extraordinarily ridiculous. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but this shows you just how privileged we are uh, in the country we live in, is that we are the only country in the world, the United States, I believe the only country in the world that flushes our toilets with drinking water. Uh, and I think you could <laughs> easily use salt water or, you know, yes. non-potable water to flush down, you know, liquid yes. or solid waste. I, I totally agree with you there, Dan. I mean, <laughs> we do it in California because in the case of an earthquake, that's your only drinking water if, if like me, you have not prepared an earthquake kit, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it's problematic that that's my only drinking water. That's just really poor planning. Um, let's be clear. But... <laughs> Yeah, that's really, I mean, look, I would would have to be very thirsty. I I keep my stuff pretty clean, um, but I don't know that I want to drink out of the water. You know, uh, I know dogs love it, but I don't understand what they're thinking. I'm just saying, as an absolute last-minute backup, I know it won't kill me. <laughs> well, you don't, you don't drink the bowl. You drink the tank. Just right, so exactly, clear exactly, exactly, Ben. I'm, no, you don't, you don't I'm sorry. I should have made that clear. It wasn't that clear. It wasn't clear to me. I was seeing you taking a ladle and going into the actual bowl, uh, which was freaking nope. me out. I mean, I, I was, nope. you know. Well, well. Well, Dan, this is the psychological freakout episode. So. <laughs> no, I was trying not to a, dry heave on camera. This is important earth, earthquake tips. The the tank has about one to two gallons of safe-ish water. Uh, you know, uh-huh. it might be a little rusty because you know usually the the stuff in there isn't very uh, well uh, well uh, kept, but it'll be yeah. safe for washing and teeth brushing and things like that. Well, well c- considering where I thought I was going to have to go, a little rust. I think I, I think I can handle that. Uh, thanks for the thank you, thanks for the tip. That's the kind of tip you want before the problem, not after, right? Like that's, right. So very helpful, guys. Um, thank you very much for that. Uh, but you know, speaking of pressure, I feel like I'm under a lot of pressure to be smart after that really stupid thing that I just thought. Um, you know, pressure is it. That's one of the things you mentioned it earlier, Denon. That's one of the things we have to overcome. Because as you go down, and I'm quote, again, I'm quoting our enigmatic engineer here, pressure becomes very oppressive uh, as you go <laughs> further and further down. So, you know, we have to kind of think about this, how we're going to combat it in our buildings, but also the construction. So, Denon, from a physics standpoint, you know, wh- what are we looking at here? What, you know, uh, humans have to withstand pressure, the buildings. Um, you know, what, what do we have to think about first? Well, for me, I, I actually, this is why I slightly prefer going underground to outer space, though um, it's interesting. As we discussed in some earlier situations, if you go too deep, the pressure underground gets way bigger than the pressure difference in space, mm-hmm. right? Because the pressure difference in space is always basically an atmosphere. But, but there's, something, <laughs> there's something about, if you, if you think about construction, I'd rather have the compressive forces because that's putting your materials closer together than the explosive forces, right? In space, the pressure's on the inside and you're putting everything under tension. Mm -hmm. Um, Underwater, you're putting everything under compression. Right. Um, 
I am not an engineer. Mm. I just can know the physics and say those words in the right place. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but psychologically and intuitively, building a structure to withhold compression just always seems easier than building a structure to, to withstand tension. Mm -hmm. So, because um, it's sort of self-healing, sure. right? That's yeah. the kind of thing I like about it, right? If you do get a little crack, it's, it's likely to kind of recompress and, and heal. Um, so that, that's just kind of where I, I sort of as a basic physics starting point, Dan. Mm -hmm. Also, I think this is where depth becomes really clear, you know, critical, sorry, not clear, um, critical, right? I think the balance of um, sort of the amount of light you want and the amount of pressure you want to deal with kind of sets that depth and puts right. us, yeah, yeah. you know, you mentioned a couple hundred feet, I think, at the outset, yeah. you know, and the hotel at 30 feet. I, I mean, I think that's exactly the sweet spot of the range we're looking for. You know, somewhere between 30 and 100 feet, you're getting light and your pressure is big, but it's not like, ooh, I'm going to immediately die. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to kind of just think about, you know, at the 30 feet point, you're feeling roughly double the pressure. And so the the pressures on your vessel are it's kind of the opposite of what you'd experience going to space right instead of surviving negative one atmosphere you're now you're now trying to keep one atmosphere out instead of keeping one atmosphere in and so that's kind of the same thing and every 30 feet down you go you get another atmosphere of pressure so by the time you're at 100 feet deep you're now dealing with 10 extra atmosphere's worth of pressure. And that's tough. And I, and you're right, Dan, in that compression is generally easier. There's there, A lot of the materials we're comfortable with are generally better in compression than tension. It's easier to make um, a, a sphere that can compress and hold its shape than it is to make one that can hold pressure inside of it. Um, but it's still difficult. I, I think it's a lot easier to build a a pressure vessel for going to space than it is to build a say 20 atmosphere uh submarine that can go a couple hundred feet underwater <laughs> well and that leads us into construction right i mean the pressures kind pressure and the corrosive nature of salt water i think are the two factors we really have to overcome when designing a, a large city and there's a couple of ways you know you got to think even just the act of building underwater is difficult you know how do we do that so thanks to uh my time watching one of my favorite shows which is the curse of oak island i know what a caisson <laughs> is which is a large metal cylinder that you can drill into the ground and a coffer dam which is i i think it's large inflatable um, devices you can use to push water away from an area. Now, you know, this might be easy. 30 feet's probably, this isn't going to work for that. Maybe much shallower depths. So what we're looking at is something that they did in the Trans Bay Tunnel uh, up in Northern California, which is to build something off-site, take it to the area, and then sink it, and then drop it down to the ocean floor, and then manipulate it into place down there. Uh, th so that's going to be the construction method, I think. But what about the construction that we're going to use? I mean, you know, uh, from a material science point, Denon, I mean, is steel okay? Are we using glass, uh, con concrete? You know, what can withstand uh, the chemical and physical um, punishment that the ocean will dole out? Well, I think, you know, you listed a bunch of things, and I, what we do is think carefully about the environment we're building for, not the environment we built in. And I think that's the problem 
and and the, and the solution in the same place. Like for instance, you said, oh, salt water is very corrosive. Well, it's corrosive to the things it's corrosive to. I know that sounds like a silly <laughs> statement, right? Brilliant, yeah. right? But but think about acid. Acid is incredibly corrosive. We say that all the time. Uh-huh. But there are things that are by definition acid resistant. Right. Yeah. It's all about what is the chemical reaction, right? So the Romans were famous because they discovered a type of concrete because of the materials they were using that worked underwater, right? And that was like a huge breakthrough that you could pour it and it would actually harden underwater, and so. I mean, that was a little bit by accident, but our material science now has all been focused on building things that survive in the air. It is not that hard of a switch to go to chemistry that would survive underwater. Um, you know, one thing I think about right away is glass. Glass is a pretty darn inert material. Um, and we, we think of it as being fragile, but it, glass is sort of the solid material science version of a foam. Um, because it is an amorphous material that's not crystalline in shape. I just had to slip that. I, I, I like <laughs> what you did there. That's all right. We needed yeah. it. Uh, we needed it. But 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 if you think about it, right, there are ways to make glass. I mean, it looks scary, right? You can see all the water out there. You're always panicked. It's going to come in. Always. But it's a cool starting point, right? Yeah. yeah. Because it's not really going to corrode. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think. I love your quote, right? Biology is nature's technology. Mm-hmm. I think you look at the stuff in the ocean that survives very well. And and think about that as a starting point, as a construction for your materials. So it, it is it is exactly that material science design problem. Well, we, it's been a big psychological episode. Foam, I know, is your security blanket. So I have no problem with you <laughs> sticking it in there. We all need it to feel comfortable. And Denon, you know, you mentioned the Romans dumping, you know, kind of finding, uh, you know, that material by accident. I mean, penicillin was discovered by accident. So, you know, better to be lucky than good. And I think we need a little (laughs) bit of luck. Uh, We're going to build this sprawling city. Uh, But Ben, what do you think about this? You know, we've got the material, but there's got to be some engineering tricks uh, that you know to keep this city uh, not afloat, but uh, not afloat for for as long as possible. Watertight. Watertight, submerged. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. I I think Dan brings up a good point that there we having non materials that won't corrode underwater is very valuable. You could use glass, you could use plastics. You know, we think about, you know, aquariums that build their tanks, saltwater aquariums that build their tanks out of these enormous sheets of acrylic. Um, those would be safe underwater, but, but the problem with all of these is they're not as strong from a pressure perspective. You need very thick, heavy pieces of these materials to survive the kinds of pressures we're talking about. And so I'm going to, you know, go, back and think about metal and you know generally speaking you know subs are made out of steel there's a reason they make them out of steel it's because (laughs) it works um but you can't it well it's mostly because it's cheap and it's easy to manipulate and it's easy to build with (laughs) and there's a lot of very useful alloys but the problem with steel is it always does there's no steel that won't corrode in salt water even the most stainless of steels is going to corrode in salt water because salt water is horrific to metals and so you need to use technology to get around that. You can use fancy coatings that w- will protect the salt water from getting into the metal in the first place. But you can also use uh, sacrificial materials uh, that are more um, conductive than the steel that will attract the corrosive properties of the seawater to those, those materials first. And then you just got to have a maintenance cycle where you're replacing these basically blocks of metal that you bolt to your, your city and you just got to, on a schedule, replace them so that they corrode and your city doesn't corrode. Uh, these are amazing. I've seen pictures of this. They're like little ingots, the little things you yep. kind of bolt to the side. Uh, this was, when you told me about this, Ben, I was almost in disbelief because it seems magical. 
but it actually works, and you know, it's it's chemistry, um, and and it's yeah. uh, it's fascinating. And, and Dan, in the spirit of triggers, mm -hmm. I will like to just make a personal note here. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first experiments we had to do when I was a professor, which I depend critically on for getting tenure, um, we, we <laughs> were studying we were studying molecules on the surface of water uh -huh. in, in a tray, dish we had made that we knew were sensitive to ions and metal and salt. Um, the dish was aluminum coated basically with Teflon and weird things kept happening. Um, and, and the the effort and pain to get a Teflon-like coating that had no pinholes um, was, was, was almost traumatic, except for the fact, mm -hmm. better to be lucky than good, um, the ions that we were accidentally releasing revealed a new um, interesting physics phenomenon that was based after a thing called the parking lot problem, because I just love things that sound mundane. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we got three papers out of this accident. So oh, wow. sometimes salt being highly corrosive um, first seems very disturbing, yeah. but does lead to exciting you know, physics discoveries. No one else in the world knows about it, but there are three <laughs> papers out there. It'll be quoted at some point, uh, the Denon situation, the, the Denon solution. Yeah. Uh, I think will be an answer to a, a trivia question for sure. Uh, well, you're talking about triggers. You know, I got triggered over this conversation because there's something I've got to ask you guys. You're talking about steel. You're talking about glass. These are, again, Denon, by your own admission, these are mundane uh, materials, mundane problems. But, I, you know, I'm the master of film and television. I, I'm going to the movie Jaws, uh, Jaws 3 in particular, or The Meg, where you have these underwater cities with these glass tubes so that, you know, Ben can do his research looking at the coral <laughs> reefs or whatever. But this seems to be a moment of weakness, a moment of vulnerability, because should some gigantic shark, and it's inevitable, the longer the city exists, it's inevitable a shark's going to attack it, uh, at least in my own mind. How do we, what security, what security protocols can we put into place? Can we, you know, have a security gate that shuts if, if something's breached? Um, is there a way to shut off the entire section? Uh, how would we really do this? I, I'm curious. Actually, Ben, I'm going to go to you first on this as our engineer. Uh, what do you think would be the best way to handle a problem like this? Yeah, so I th you bring up a great point. Windows are always the weak spot when it comes to this sort of engineering because the interface between glass or plastic and steel is difficult. Uh, it's hard to make a good seal, it's hard to make a seal that won't leak, and it's hard to make that, um, that interface strong. Uh, it's, you know, once you have a flange that the window is kind of sitting against, now all of a sudden you have something that if there's enough pressure, it can just pop, you know, it can bend that flange out and the window could just pop through into the, into the area. And you you know your window isn't in where the window should be anymore. Right, um, it's That's a very problem. Difficult. You, you can't weld glass to steel. You can't weld you know plastic to steel. So uh, you brought up these security systems, and that's that's the way it's solved in ships. You know when a ship gets a leak because it hits a rock or something, you have watertight chambers so that the leak is confined to a specific area. So if you're gonna build this underwater research station with a giant window, uh, you should put a waterproof door <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> on that chamber so that if the window breaks, you can seal it off really quickly and not worry about your entire uh, research base flooding. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think something important to keep in mind for everyone here is one thing we're not worried about is our city sinking. 
<laughs> right. It's a good That's point. True. Right? So That's I, true. I, and I yeah. say that, I say that yeah. because, you know, I think a lot of people, not to bring up another trigger and tragedy, you know, think Titanic, which mm. supposedly had all these chambers, yep. right? right? But there were other issues here in that the Titanic also was in danger of sinking, right? Yes. It had to protect of two things, right? The water getting in and the not sinking. Um, and, and our city is not likely to just suddenly break in half because it is on the ground, presumably. Mm -hmm. So so having, you know, watertight doors, having pumps. I mean, the reality is we do this all the time in New Orleans, right? New Orleans is basically sunk. <laughs> and right. And we figure out how to get the water out and, and we deal with it. Um, ships have bilge pumps because you expect your ship to have a certain amount of water in it. Um, so I think one of the things is to keep in mind that the design goal is not to keep water out at 100% level. The design goal is to live in balance with the water around you. And so if you have built-in systems for constantly dealing with the small leaks and then emergency systems, if there's a big one, Dan, mm -hmm. I, I think you, you, know, you have the right safety features designed in. Um, and the key is, you know, we, we talked about this, just don't panic because you know, water does flow at a fixed rate. It takes time for water mm -hmm. to get in. Like right. it's not an instantaneous problem. Um, you, you have time to deal with it. So I, I think those are the two things. Knowing that you're not going to sink and knowing that you're not going to crack in half and fall underwater, you're already there, um, are actually good things. Yeah. yeah, well, I would imagine as a human being, uh, if you this does happen, you're going to want to float. And I think the fear may be you're not going to float fast enough to get to the surface. Uh, and you're right. The, the flow of water is fixed, but with a big enough hole, a uh, lot more gallons of water based on the size of the hole. Um, so I love what you're saying. It should put people's minds at ease, but the, the, the crippling um, the need to be attached to reality sometimes, sometimes uh, gets in the way. And, you know, in closing here, gotta remember we solved a lot of problems here but this sprawling city will take decades to complete and it will be made piecemeal and so i imagine we wouldn't continue building it unless what we've already built is completely secure uh which is extraordinarily important uh but you know we've talked about a lot uh, especially with a sprawling underwater city but maybe there's a couple things we didn't quite get to denon is there anything about building an underwater city that you wanted to talk about for just a little bit of time left Oh, definitely. And this, you know, I love the, the personal stories I've added here. Many of you do not know that as a grad student, I worked for what's called the High Energy Particle Physics Group. And one of my jobs was to polish plastic um, because we had things called light guides okay. that got the light signal in and out. Um, I'm going back to my opening, Light Dan. I am an expert light guide polisher, right? <laughs> wow. And you have to polish these things to such a level of precision. Uh -huh. um, the, the, the level of sandpaper you go down to, the hours spent doing this, but it gets amazing light transportation properties. So I'm going to have my light guides in my city to the surface, bringing light in no matter what depth we are, maximizing my, you know, sort of greenhouses, um, most importantly, giving me some good reading light sure. um, and and running my solar batteries. So when we go to build the city, Dan, I, I volunteer my surfaces services for um, polishing plastic. Well, you could offer um, your surfaces. It'll bring back those memories of, of grad school. Well, I mean, you could <laughs> offer your surfaces as well because they sound extremely yes, well exactly. polished. Yeah, I, I like them. Yeah. Uh, it sounds wonderful. Might be the key to our success. Uh, what about you, Ben? Is there anything that we missed you wanted to talk about? Well, I think Den just brought up a little bit of uh, my employment trauma too, where I uh, worked on some fiber optic projects and bonding fibers together is also a very challenging uh, process. You have to get them very clean and then melt them just right so that you don't mess up the 
the connection, but that so that they're bonded properly and uh, transfer the light well. So, you know, I'm glad we're 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 on this together here, Denon, both bringing <laughs> yeah. light down for uh, photosynthesis, but also bringing the fibers over for uh, communication. Well, I will tell you this. I could not have possibly predicted that this episode, we were going to air so many psychological issues that we had to work through. Uh, I'm going to just keep it rolling. Why not? Um, so, you know, I love marine biology, and I think that possibly, you know, I did, I did a little uh, studying of it in high school, took a couple of marine biology trips down to Florida, where the Jules Underground uh, Underwater Lodges. It didn't stay there, unfortunately. Uh, but I spent a lot of time there. So uh, as much as I, I, I'm probably terrified of living in an underwater city for fear of, you know, not so much sharks, but, you know, just the, the need for air and it not being a readily available in the, in the environment that you're in. But you could get me down there. I think I'd want to do it. But I want to tell you about a traumatic experience that I had. Uh, the first time I learned about an upside-down jellyfish. Do you guys know what upside-down jellyfish are? They're really cool. <laughs> I do not, but... So they sit upside-down uh, at hence the name, and they have zooxanthellae algae that's, that's in a um, symbiotic relationship with them, so they use photosynthesis to get nutrients. So there's this lagoon in the middle of this, uh, in the marine where we were um, staying for this marine biology trip, and the, the, the lagoon on the bottom completely covered in these beautiful jellyfish, but all, you know, still, they were just collecting, eat, they're eating, right? They're, they're eating at all times. Hmm. So what we did is we got into the water, you know, a couple feet down, and then we would we were going to swim over them and kind of, you know, it's about 20 feet of water or whatever. So you get to look down, probably about 10 feet of water, and you get to look, and we we're going to research and, and just have a nice overview of these beautiful jellyfish. I love them. Uh, of course, I was last in the line of five. The person in front of me was a complete klutz, and their gigantic fins kicked up all the the sand and and dirt and jellyfish and just kick them right into my face, <laughs> which is oh, which no. is not. I was looking forward to the trip, and the last thing you want when you're looking forward to something is to get stung by a bunch of jellyfish. So it was not fun. Um, it did not make me never want to do it again. But not a fun trip. Uh, not a fun situation. But. I think there's lots of fun to be had in an underwater city for sure. Uh, and if you think that that's the case or you've got some solutions that we didn't quite come up with, uh, you can get in touch with us. We, we are easy to get a hold of. You can find the show on social media. We're on Twitter at FGGGBTPod. We're on Facebook at FGGGBT. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You just flip my name. That's at Denon Michael. And if you're really looking for me on Facebook, you got to stick in a prof. It's a little bit of a, you know, search and discovery um, exercise sure. at Prof Den and Michael. <laughs> <All right>. Ben, <laughs> where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? You spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And if you've got a question you want us to answer, you can get in touch with us over email questions at fgbt.com. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode. And finally, this show contains powerful information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. Now, it is your duty to take this information and to do good with it. Remember, no matter the situation, you always want to become a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. 
The fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.